You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. This podcast is designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. The information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. In 2019, the government amended the non-arms linked income rules that apply to complying super funds to include income derived where a non-arms linked expense has been incurred. The ATO has since released Law Companion Ruling 2021-2, which outlines their view on when a complying super fund will derive non-arms linked income, where it's occurred a non-arms linked expense. Hi everyone, I'm Tim Sanderson, a senior manager in the First Tech team. And joining me to discuss the ATO's ruling and potential impact for SMSF clients is the head of the First Tech team, Craig Day. G'day, Craig. How are you going? Well, thanks, Tim. So the, the shoe's on the other foot today, mate. It is. I'm going to have to answer mate. all the hard questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, particularly for non-arms length income, I'm, I'm happy it's that way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Lucky you. <laughs> Lucky me. Anyway, so, let's get going. Yeah, let's get into it. So... Um, We've recently seen some changes to the definition of non-arms length income to include non-arms length expenses and the release of a contentious ruling in July this year. Um, But before we look at that, can you give us a quick refresher on non-arms length income or NALI? Yeah, really important actually. Um, Pardon me. Now with NALI, I suppose the important thing to remember here is if we approach it from what are these rules trying to do, right? Um, and so with the non arms linked income rules, what the CIS Act is really, sorry, the Tax Act is really trying to do here is to say that if we've got some sort of concessionally taxed vehicle, i.e. the most concessionally taxed vehicle in Australia being superannuation funds, then we want to stop income being artificially diverted to that structure um, for purely tax reasons, right? So someone trying to get a tax benefit out of superannuation by diverting income that should have been taxed at the company tax rate or an individual's tax rate into superannuation to get that 15, 15% earnings rate, right? So the way it does that is it does it via three different ways, right? Oh, actually four different ways currently. So first of all, look at schemes. So if you earn income from a scheme where the parties are not dealing with each other on an arm's length basis and the income is higher than it otherwise should be if they had been dealing at an arm's length basis, then that income will be now non-arms linked income. So I'll give you an example of that. Many years ago, I was chatting to a guy and he said, oh, Craig, I came up with this great idea. My self-managed super fund owns a business real property, so I'm going to pay my self-managed super fund double the rent. And I said, well, congratulations, Einstein. You do really well there because you don't technically breach anything in the SISAC there, but what you will now have now <laughs> is non-arms linked income, right? So it's going to be taxed at 45%. Um, the other things that will be non-arms linked income can include a dividend from a private company where the amount is not consistent with an arm's length dealing. Now, in relation to that, what the, the rules require us to do is to look at a range of factors uh, in regard to a whole bunch of things. So firstly, I think there's six different things there, but just to go through very quickly, um, they'll be looking at the value of the shares in the company that you hold. So what did you acquire what did you acquire acquire them for? Um, the cost of the fund uh, to the shares. So you know what exactly what I'm saying is just like how much of those shares 
or what were they worth when you acquired them, but what did you actually acquire them for, right? Um, another one would be looking at the rate of dividends received by the company. So in relation to yourself, maybe you acquired the dividends at market rate, or sorry, the shares at market rate, but you're getting double the dividends that any other shareholder is. Yeah. Um, so it's all those different things that you'll look at. Um, they'll also look at a distribution from a non-fixed trust. So think about a, a family discretionary trust. If you want to make your, your fund a beneficiary of one of those, then straight away any income you distribute to the self-managed super fund will be non-arm's length income, okay? Because it doesn't it, it doesn't have any right to this income. It's just the trustees decided that that's where we're going to pay it. A whole so lot of income for free. <laughs> exactly. So therefore, non-arm's length income. And the final one there is a distribution from a fixed trust. So, for example, we might be talking about a unit trust here where the income was derived under a scheme where the parties were not dealing at arm's length and the income is higher than it otherwise should be. No worries. Um, and, and so obviously just on the, the impact of non-arm's length income, it's obviously not a good thing to have, is it? You mentioned it's taxed at 45% rather than yeah. the normal 15%. Yeah, not a good thing to have unless you like paying a lot of tax. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yes, as it is, it's taxed at 45%. Now, the important thing to understand there is that when we look at the amount that we tax at 45%, it's all of the income you derive from that arrangement. So um, in that you know, scenario that I was talking to, the, the guy that wanted to lease his business real property from his fund at double the, the market rate of rent, let's say the normal rate of rent would be $12,500 and he's going to pay $25,000 worth of rent. You don't just say it's that portion over above market that is non arm's length income. It's actually the whole amount of the income that you derive from that asset. So in that case, it'd be forty five percent tax on twenty five thousand dollars, not just the twelve and a half over and above market rate. Um, the other thing to note there is also that uh, it applies to both ordinary and statutory income. So you know, rent and income, interest, and all those sorts of things. Not ordinary income, but things like capital gains. Absolutely, it will apply to a statutory income as well as franking credits. So if you've got any franking credits over on any private company uh, shares um, under tax law, we include that in our assessable income, then we get an offset. So once again, those franking credits will actually be included in our non-arms income amount and taxed at 45%. Right. So a significant dis disincentive to have gnarly. Yeah. Um, so so looking at the changes to the the gnarly legislation to introduce non-arms length expenses. Um, what, what were those changes? Yeah, now the important thing to understand these changes uh, is where they've come from. And where they've come from, if you ask me, is limited recourse borrowing arrangements. So we can, from, from my perspective, put them purely to blame for these rules. <laughs> um, because what we had was when we first got limited recourse borrowing arrangements, um, it was done via that instalment warrant kind of process. So if you go all the way back to 2007, there was, you know, people starting to come out with uh, different types of property warrants. And um, the ATO was saying, no, 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 you can't you can't do a property warrant over over an SMSF inside of, you know, over a property inside a self-managed shift, and that's a borrowing. But then the response was, well, you can do instalment warrants over shares. What's the difference? And so then the government came out and changed the rules, right, and said, yes, you can borrow, under, you know, the original, remember the original title of that bill was Instalment Warrant Arrangements, but what they didn't allow was um, people to go and buy an instalment warrant. Instead, they kind of reverse engineered an instalment warrant arrangement into the rules, and then it finally got changed to limited recourse borrowing arrangements because it's a bit confusing calling them 
calling them Nali. Now, what people did with that is if as long as you satisfied all the requirements, you could literally go out and borrow to buy a property via an SMSF. You just had to have it be a trust and meet a couple of other requirements. But the issue with that was that people started to lend money to their own self-managed super fund at a zero interest rate with a 25 or 30-year or 50-year repayment term with the only repayment being capital at the end of the term. Um, so people were really taking the mickey and pushing it way, way, way too far and making something that was actually really a contribution and making it look like a loan, okay? And the the, the ATO started to not like it uh, and they started to attack it on the grounds of non-unthink-income um, because they came up with this idea that what you need to do there is com- compare that arrangement with a normal arm's length borrowing arrangement um, and say, well, could you borrow in similar circumstances? And they would say, well, no, you can't because you've got a zero interest rate loan compared to a market rate loan. So therefore, any income you generate out of that arrangement is going to be higher than it otherwise would be because otherwise you couldn't afford the loan, right? So they essentially said uh, that's gnarly. And then to confirm all of that, the, the government changed the rules. So that's why I go all the way back to the, the beginning to say this is where it's all come from. And what the government's done here is they've modified the relevant section. Now, do you remember what, I think it's section 295550, is that? Yep, that's... Yep, so they've, they've amended that. And what they've basically said that, uh, that for schemes, they've added some additional wording in to say that a fund will have non-arms income where that income is derived from a scheme involving a non-arms dealing. And as a result of that non-arms dealing, the fund incurs a loss, outgoing or expenditure that is less than the amount that might have been expected to incur had the parties been dealing at arm's length. And also that includes incurring no expense at all, right? So they said if you do that as part of a of a scheme dealing directly with some sort of investment, then that's going to be a non-arm's length expense and therefore that would potentially trigger the non-unthink income rules in relation to the income coming from that asset. So even if the income itself is not higher than a commercial amount, the expenses mean uh, essentially I'm, I'm getting a larger amount of income anyway. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? So what? So you might be deriving an, an arm's length amount of rent from that. So let's say you go and buy a, a residential investment property, right, and you lease it to a third party, but there's some sort of non-arm's length dealing, maybe you bought it for... Oh, you're not charging. We'll get to that later on, but there's some non-unthinked expense involved in that situation. So when you think about that, because I'm not charging that expense, the net income of the fund is going to be higher than it otherwise should be if I was dealing at arm's length. So that's where we get gnarly coming in from an expense not being charged. Yep. Okay, now the, the other one here is for fixed trust. So what they basically say here is income derived by a fund as a beneficiary of a fixed trust will be gnarly where it's derived um, from a scheme involving a non-arm's dealing and the fund incurs a loss outgoing or expenditure of an amount in acquiring its fixed entitlement or in gaining or producing the income and the amount is less, including nil, that the amount the fund might have otherwise been expected to occur if it had been dealing at arm's length. So once again there, so I imagine that I'm going out and buying some units in a unit trust Um Mind you, I don't need to be dealing with related parties here. I could be dealing with an unrelated party, but there's some sort of scheme going on in the background. Uh, And in that situation, if I've paid less than what I really should be paying for those units in that unit trust, 
then the income, the dividends of, sorry, not dividends, distributions coming out of that unit trust will be non-arm's length income because I've now got a higher entitlement to income than I otherwise should have because my cost of getting into that unit trust was less than it should have been. Right. And so you mentioned there that non-arm's length expenditure being included for schemes and fixed trusts. Mm -hmm. But when you talked about non-arm's length income before, there was also private companies and non-fixed trusts. Um, So why have we not seen any changes in for those two things? Okay. All right. First of all, deal with uh, non-fixed trusts. So remember those discretionary trusts. Well, automatically, that's always going to be non-arm's length income. So it doesn't matter whether that trust is, you know, carrying out um, or incurring or the fund is incurring a non-arm's length expense to get some sort of uh, income distribution out of that discretionary trust. It's irrelevant, right, because the income coming out of that uh, that district discretionary trust or non-fixed trust is always going to be gnarly. Now, when I talk about non-fixed trust, don't just don't just think discretionary trust. It's any sort of trust where the trustee has some sort of discretion over the ability to distribute income. Now, that technically would be absolutely every trust out there because unit holders can also always get together and decide to modify the terms of the trust, right? But essentially, as long as you maintain that trust as if it's a fixed trust, right, then you're going to be fine. But on the flip side, if I've got, uh, you know, discretionary trust like we're talking about, that's always going to be non-arm's length income. So we don't need to worry about that one. For what was the other private companies, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Now, when you go back and look at those rules, so if I go back up and think about how does uh, non-arm's length income apply to a, a company or a private company, and just to remind ourselves, it says a dividend from a private company where the amount is not consistent with an arm's length dealing. It doesn't actually say that the income is higher. It just says the amount is not consistent with an arm's length dealing. So the thinking is that that already captures non-arm's length expenses. Yeah, so if I've acquired my shares for half of what they're worth, for example, then yep. that's not going to meet those tests to be consistent with an arm's length dealing. That's right. So all of a sudden, it's already there, right? Now, what the government was actually saying, if you read through the EM on this, it says that these rules are already applied, right? It's just to remove any ambiguity or uncertainty that they that they didn't, right? right. So you know, you could, you know, according to the ATO, you can argue that this these rules were already there for for fixed trusts as well, but they are just um, absolutely confirming that there's no doubt whatsoever that a non-arm's length expense is going to be captured by these rules. Right, okay. And and so following those changes, the legislative changes, um, the ATO, I think, first issued a draft ruling on how those non-arm's length expenditure rules would apply, and that was yep. draft for some time, but it got made final in July this year. Yep. Um, firstly, when is that ruling effective from? Okay, the ruling is effective from the same time the amendments to the Tax Act came into effect. So um, although the the particular bill wasn't legislated until sometime late in 2019, it had an effective date of the 2018-19 financial year. So it applies from the 1st of July. So what this ruling does is also applies from the 1st July. But the interesting thing here is that it says that it applies to income derived from 2018-19 onwards 
regardless of whether the scheme was entered into prior to 1 July 2018. So if the government sees a scheme that you set up in 2015 and it's been operating all the way through up until current, they'll attack the income from 1 July 2018, right? But it doesn't matter that the scheme was first entered into before 1 July 2018 because the income was derived under the scheme um, on or after 1 July 2018. Right. So so potentially not just schemes being set up now that, that potentially are impacted but no. being set up before those changes. Yeah, they, they, this is retrospective yeah. stuff. <laughs> yep. um, and so what, at, a, at a high level, what did the ruling say? Okay, the, re- the ruling said two things, right? So it says that the NALE provisions will apply where there's a sufficient nexus between a NALE, so a non-arm's length expense, and in gaining or producing the relevant income or acquiring the relevant interest. So, for example, this may occur where a fund incurs a NALE in relation to a specific asset. So I talked about my business raw property before with leasing it for $25,000 when the market rate would be 12 and a half, right? So in that situation, I'm now looking at that, the income coming out of that particular asset, okay? But interestingly... The ruling also confirmed that Anale may also have a sufficient nexus to all of the ordinary or statutory income derived by a fund. So, for example, this may occur where the fund incurs Anale that does not relate to any specific amount being derived by the fund, but instead relates to like a general fund expense that would normally be deductible, right? So think about our administration costs or something like those. That doesn't relate to any particular asset, but it relates to the cost of the fund of the whole. If those administration costs are being levied on a non-arms link basis, i.e. free or less than market, then that tarnishes all of the income coming out of that fund, right? So quite punitive and quite controversial. So potentially very small expense, potentially uh, tainting the entire income of the fund, potentially. Yeah, you could have, let's that. say, a $3 million fund and a $2,000 expense for the administration of the fund isn't, isn't paid because of a non-arms length dealing, and all of a sudden, all of the income coming out of that, um, what did I say, $2 million fund is now being taxed at 45%. So, yeah. Yeah, well. Um, well, so if we look at specific assets first, um, will, will Nali be deemed to apply to all of the income derived from the asset where a, a non-arms length expense is incurred? Well, all all yeah. income in, at all times in the future or just the income from the current year? Okay. Not necessarily, right? Despite everything I've just talked about, there's a NALI there. Why wouldn't that result in NALI immediately applying? Now, the reason why is the ruling breaks NALI up into two different types of expenses, right? So it looks at recurrent expenses that don't relate to the acquisition of an asset. And what it says there is NALI will trigger NALI in that year only, okay, but only income, no capital gains if we sell that asset in that particular year. So just rewind. So I've gone and um, incurred some sort of recurrent expense in relation to, let's say I've gone and repaired my my property, right, and, I have an, and I'm an electrician and I don't charge for that repair and I wasn't doing that work as a trustee, and we'll come back to that later on, but I haven't charged when I should have charged, right? Now, because that's not a capital expense, it's a recurrent expense, 
And because I only incur that in that one particular year, that would mean the income that I get off that particular, so the rent off that asset would be gnarly in that particular year. But next year, if I don't go and do anything wrong, I'm back to normal concessional tax rates, right? And remember here, this also applies not only in accumulation phase, but in pension phase. So if that's exempt income, once again, 45%, right? Now, the the thing that I initially thought when I read the ruling was, gee, you wouldn't want to go and sell that asset in that year when you've got that recurrent expense. But the ruling actually does pick up on that on a very in a very subtle way and says that, in relation to a recurrent expense, if you actually went and triggered a capital gain, then they would only be looking at the income. They're not going to look at any capital gains that you might incur from that particular asset in that year. So once again, if I come back to the example of the electrician, of releasing it out to an unrelated party, I go and do the work, I should have charged, I don't, right? And But then I decide to sell that asset in that same year, the rent will be gnarly, but the capital gain won't. Right, right? so potentially some... Overall income from the asset in a particular year will, could be gnarly, and the remainder, the capital gain, just tax normally. That's right. Yep, that's right. But if I incur a gnarly, so a non-unplanned expense uh, to acquire an asset, and this interestingly includes a financing expense, which you would normally think of as a, as a recurrent expense, um, then in that situation, that gnarly triggers gnarly in that year plus all future years, and it applies to both income and capital gains because essentially what they're saying is you've incurred a NALE or a non-unplanked expense to acquire this asset. You should never have had the asset. Therefore, all income and future capital gains that come out of the asset will always be NALE. So it doesn't matter whether you sell the asset 30 years later, that's NALE and you will pay top dollar, top tax rate on the income. Imagine selling the asset when you're actually in pension phase. All of that capital gain should have been tax free. Instead, now it's taxed at forty five percent. The accessible capital gain. Yeah, wow, well, huge. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, really important. So, in that situation, we've got to be really careful um, with what we're doing now. Now, also think about that in terms of the the financing expense that I just talked about to you. Or actually, I'll give you. I'll give you. Give you some examples here that break this up nicely. So where a fund acquired units in a private trust for less than market value, right? Those unit trusts have been acquired at less than market value. So therefore, any future income and capital gains out of that is going to cause a problem. Okay. Or if my fund borrowed on arm's length terms, right? Sorry, let me replay that. My fund borrowed on non-arm's length terms, right, e.g. a nil interest rate from a member of the fund, then to, to go and acquire a property via a limited recourse borrowing arrangement, let's say I acquire that property from, you know, from you, right, from a completely unrelated party. Yep. Um, then in that situation, even though I've acquired the property from an unrelated party at market rate, I did it using a borrowing arrangement that wasn't set up on arm's length terms. So therefore, I've now incurred a nally to acquire the asset in the form of the, the financing expense. So therefore, the nally provisions will also apply to all future income and capital gains on that particular property. Wow. And so what about if the fund incurs a nally, um, not really of a recurrent one, but of a capital nature, but it already owns the asset? Um, so, you know, potentially providing 
I don't know, build, building something at not arm's length terms on an existing asset of the fund. Um, yeah. How, yeah, yeah. How no, so, no, I get you. Yeah, so I get you. So let's say you've gone and bought the property from an un, unrelated third party for an arm's length, mate, and then I go and do some improvements to it. Yep. Uh, and I'm a builder and I should have been charging and I don't. Well, guess what? The right of the ruling confirms that NALI now applies. The interesting thing here is it applies to 100% of any future capital gains. Right, so it applies so, from that point on, but it's not just in that year, it's it's all future income, including capital it's gains. It's all, all future income, including capital gains. But what I'm saying there is, let's say you've got a $10,000 capital improvement on a million-dollar property, all of the rent coming from that million-dollar property and all future capital gains, 100% of it is now gnarly, not just the $10,000 divided by a million. No, it's everything. Uh takes the entire asset. Yeah. Um, yep. and so so what about... It taints I, the entire asset. That's a yeah. good way to say it. Uh, and so I imagine this might be reasonably common, but what about um, a related party limited recourse borrowing arrangement that was originally established a number of years ago at a you know a nil interest rate or a lower interest rate than market value, but... Since then, when the ATO came out with those safe harbour guidelines, I think that was in 2016 or around that time, they've since refinanced it to be in line with those safe harbour guidelines. What does the ruling say about that? Can it be fixed? Okay. If you apply the ruling literally, no, you can't fix it, right? Because it says that if you enter into a non-arm length limited recourse borrowing arrangement, um, then all future income and capital gains will be gnarly. And this cannot be rectified by refinancing the LRBA into uh, an arm's length arrangement. Too bad you, you acquired the asset up front on non-arm's length terms because you had a non-arm's length borrowing arrangement at that time. So it taints it permanently, right? But the interesting thing here is that, you know, when we go back to those 50-year LRBAs at zero interest rate with zero capital repayments until the end, right? So a contribution in anything but name. Um, in, in those situations that the ATO did catch up with people and it put out that rule said, if you've gone and done one of these things, now we've got these safe harbour requirements, you have to refinance into one of those, into that safe harbour requirement. Otherwise, future income is going to be non-unthinked income. Right, so everyone went and refinanced, and we're up and away. Now this ruling comes out retrospectively and says all of that fix you did was pointless because it's going to be gnarly anyway. Now, whether or not the government or the ATO kind of move on that, and they say, well, if you were caught in that original kind of situation before we clarified that non-unthinked income could apply, then as long as you refinanced in accordance with those instructions and met all the requirements, you're okay. Right? Maybe they might do that, but the way the ruling is currently written, no, it'll always be gnarly. But I, I kind of think that they might, I don't know, but what I would say is if you entered into a, a non-unthinked limited recourse borrowing arrangement today and then thought, oh, no, let's quick, let's refinance it to fix it, it's too late. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And so the ruling talks about acquiring an asset for less than its market value under a scheme where the parties were not dealing at arm's length. Um, and they say that'll be a nalay and it will trigger nalay. So if I purchase, for example, a business real property from my fund at less than market value, that is, and that is nalay, but don't I have a bigger problem 
now that I've just breached Section 66 of CIS as the exemption, you know, from the prohibition of assets from related parties, as that requires that to be at market value. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Now you've got two problems, right? Uh, one of those is a tax problem. The other problem is you're going to jail, right? <laughs> because, because Section 66 does have a, a, a theoretical fine there or penalty of a, a 12 months you know, imprisonment uh, in your in your local jail, right? Um, now there is trustee penalties there as, as well, so I should be tried, but you, you literally do. So let's just say you're rectifying that it's been picked up, uh, and you go and sell the asset back out. Any capital gains is going to be gnarly, or because you incurred a gnarly to acquire it, right? Um, but there's, you know, there is a serious side to this as well, right? So what the ruling is saying is, if I buy uh, an asset for less than its market value then I can't treat the difference as an in-species contribution, which is how a lot of people may previously argued that the acquisition was at market value, okay? So let's just say I go and purchase a property, a million-dollar property for $800,000, and I just treated the the residual $200,000 as a non, um, sorry, an in-species non-concessional contribution. But my purchase contract was for a million, and we just booked it into the super fund as a $200,000 non-concessional contribution. And people would argue then to say, no, 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 I have acquired the property for a million dollars. I paid $800,000 and the other $200,000 has been booked in as a $200,000 non-concessional contribution for the member specifically, right? So the member's benefits have gone up. So therefore, there's a contribution, right? Now, that's what people may have previously done and argued, but it's not going to work anymore. And the reason for that is what the ruling actually calls out and says that if you purchase an asset for less than its market value, you are not permitted to treat the shortfall as a in-specie contribution. So if you go and buy the property for a million, the purchase contract says a million, and you purchase it, you hand over $800,000 and try and deal with the other $200,000 as an in-specie contribution, the auditor will come along and say you purchased the asset for $800,000 or that's what the cash has gone out to, to the owner of the property, being the member. Um, it's got a market value of a million dollars. You've now got NALE. So, right? Yeah, sorry, sorry, go on. Uh, so what I was basically saying there is that really critical um, that we make sure that we do all of this at market value, right? Otherwise, we're going to get ourselves in problem. Yes. And so I guess it's, as you mentioned, it's not uncommon for people to potentially want to do an asset transfer as part purchase and part in-species contribution. So in order to not fall foul of this ruling, what would they need to do in that situation? Um, what they're going to need to do is make sure that they actually acquire the property for its arm's length amount, right? So the purchase documents in the example that I've used up until this point says $800,000, right? Uh, and then we actually have a, another document or off-market transfer for the remaining $200,000 going into the SMSF as a in-species contribution, Right now, in that situation, um, we should be okay because you're purchasing 80% of the property for 80% of its market value, 
Therefore, that is an arm's length transaction. So therefore, NALE should not apply. Now, to, to give you an example of where this can go wrong, though, is imagine yourself in an employee share scheme arrangement. So you've got a client that's an employee of a listed company and they've got an employee share scheme that's come up and says you can buy some sort of allocated, let's call it 1,000 shares in the company for half price, half the market value, right? And as part of the scheme, the employee can actually nominate a family member or some other entity to participate in the scheme, right? So let's just say... I've got a self-managed super fund and I want my self-managed super fund to purchase those shares at 50% discount. Now, in this situation, the ATO actually has it online. I went and looked yesterday, just to make sure it was still there. And it says that if you do this, right, um, if you nominate your fund to, to purchase these shares, that's you participating in the scheme. Therefore, you are the actual owner of the shares and the SMSF is acquiring them from you right? But the way you do this is that any shortfall in the value, right, you just book in as a contribution. Now, if you tried to do this now with this new ruling, that is going to cause you a problem. In fact, when you think about it, any share schemes done on or after the 1st of July 2018 potentially have this problem, right? Because when you go and look at the documents, the documents provided by the company will say $100 share was acquired at $50. But technically, I'm acquiring that from myself. Going to say that that's non-unplugged dealing, right? Because I've allowed my fund, there's a scheme here because I'm allowing my fund to participate in the scheme. So I'm transferring these shares to my fund at half value or half price effectively. So therefore, in that situation, I've got a problem because I've now acquired shares from myself. Yes, they're a listed share. Um, and I would have thought, according to the ATO website, that I'm doing it at market value, but the documents will say that I'm not doing it at market value. When the auditor comes in, they're going to go, uh-uh-uh, that's a non unplugged expense. And then, again, potentially a CIS issue as well, I suppose. Um, yeah, well, I'm, if, if I'm up against an auditor or the ATO, I might point them back to their own website. <laughs> Don't know how successful that will be because a website, something on the website is not actually a pro, you know, a binding ruling, but um, that's where I'd be pointing them to say this. But I think beyond, you know, with this new ruling, I, I, I'm not sure that that's going to, it might fly in terms of um, acquisition of assets related party exemption. Um, don't know, but it's not going to fly in relation to the ruling because yeah. the ruling's clear. And, and so just on that, the part purchase, part in species. So let's say we've done that the correct way, so we're purchasing 80% and where uh, the remaining 20% is going to be an in-specie contribution. Is there a problem? What, what happens if that other $200,000 is not at market value? Yeah, this is, this is another really odd bit in this ruling, right? Because the ruling says if you purchase at below market, then that's going to cause you a problem. But when... When they came out with this ruling, they they actually noticed that there was a problem, well, not so much a problem, but there was now um, a disconnect between the contributions ruling. So TR 2010-1, right? So what they've done is gone and updated that ruling for these rules because it used to say, you know, 
can treat the difference as an in-species contribution. Now the ruling says you can't, so they have to modify the tax ruling in relation to contributions to say, no, you can't, right? And that's that's been done as a, as a draft already, right? Now, what the other thing in this ruling says is that if you do an in-species contribution, that must be booked in at market value into the fund's accounts. So when you think about that literally, it means that if I do an in-species contribution, I can't I can't have a non-arm's length in-species contribution because it must be booked into the fund's account at market value. Yeah, so I guess if you've got something not recorded at market value, then you have you don't have the correct contribution amount reported. That's right. So you're going to have problems there. But as long as you book it in at market value, and remember here, because you're not purchasing it, it's just being done as an in-species contribution, just book it in at its market value and you're not going to have an issue there. Yep. Okay, great. So that's in relation to assets. And so if we move back to the the other key thing the ruling looked at, which is the general fund expenses, um, they can occur where a fund incurs NALE that doesn't specifically relate to any particular amount being derived by the fund, but just a generally deductible fund expense. So what what sort of things would that include? So interesting here. There's there's a there's a difference, right? So what the ruling talks about is that certain deduct expenses that would be deductible under I think it's eight one um, will be subject to these rules. So an accountancy or administration cost, but funnily enough, not a tax cost because that comes under a different uh, deduction provision. Uh, and the ATO doesn't seem to be too worried by that. So if you do your funds accounts and you don't charge market rate, oh, tut, tut, you're in trouble. But if you do the tax for the fund and you don't charge market rates, well, no, that's all right, apparently. A bit strange, right? Um, and the thing I talked to, I was talk, talking to an account slash advisor the other day, and I was saying, well, do you do you slice and dice your fees? And he goes, no. And so it's just like, well, if you charge the one fee for both the tax and the admin, how does that work? It's probably going to be gnarly, right? Because you've incurred gnarly for the admin bit, so therefore all of the fund's income is now gnarly. It doesn't matter whether you've charged um, for your for your your tax differently, right? So, yeah, watch out for that one. Um, so the other one there would be the the cost of any sort of pre uh, pre retirement financial advice provided to a member. Um, that could also cause gnarly problems um, because it relates to, you know, all of the fund's income. So if you're setting a, an investment strategy or something along those lines for all of the fund's assets, um, then, yeah, that's all of the fund's income potentially impacted. Yeah, well, so what if, um, as an example, what if I'm an accountant and I'm doing my fund's accounts and not charging the fund? I've, that would be reasonably common, I would think. Um, mm-hmm. Is that going to be a gnarly? Well, despite what I've just said, <laughs> it, it actually does depend, right? So when you understand how the CIS Act rules work in relation to trustee obligations and duties, what the CIS Act rules say in, I think it's Section 17, that defines what a self-managed super fund is, is actually quite clear there that the trustees cannot be remunerated for acting as a trustee of the fund. So that was something put there right at the beginning for self-managed super funds because they didn't want people charging their fund $100,000 a year to administer it or be the trustee of it, right? So just an early access mechanism, <laughs> right? Um, so what they what they said there was that, no, you can't be remunerated. So the way the, um, the ruling deals with that is to they say, if you've got your trustee hat on when you're doing that activity, 
because you can't be remunerated for it, it therefore doesn't matter that you don't charge. It won't relate or won't result in a non-arm's length expense occurring, okay? However, if you are doing it in a different capacity and you're able to charge for that, and remember Section 17B has some quite clear rules about who or in what circumstances trustees are allowed to charge their fund, despite what I've just said, but this relates to doing some sort of service for the fund, not with your trustee hat on. You've now got a separate hat on, right? And so what the rules say there, that is a, a trustee can actually charge their fund when they're doing um, performing that work in a different capacity, where they perform the duties or services not in a trustee or capacity, so this is Section 17B, and they are appropriately qualified and licensed to perform the work and they operate a business of providing those services to the public eye. They're not just an employee and the amount they charge is on an arm's length basis. So if you've got an accountant here um, that is offering their services to the public of being an accountant um, and they provide those services to their own self-managed super fund uh, in a way that you could argue is not them acting as the trustee of the fund, then the NALI provisions can potentially kick in. But if they're just, just doing the books without um, having their accountant hat on, and the difference between those two is I'm sure you're just about to ask me, um, if, if you can hand on heart argue that, then you're doing it as a trustee, so therefore you do not have to charge. Yeah, so obviously the follow-up question there would be, you know, has the ATO provided much guidance in their ruling about you know, how can I determine whether I've got my trustee hat on or some sort of other, other hat on? Yeah, look, they do. Um, but when I read through those sections, it's they're trying to set some rules for a vast myriad of circumstances, right? So, therefore, you've got to set them pretty high level, but the high, more high level you set them, the greyer they get and more ambiguous they get, right? So basically what the ruling says that if you're complying with a Commonwealth Act or law, right, such as the CIS Act, for example, or the Corporations Act, um, then you're going to be acting as a trustee. So if that's a duty or obligation under the CIS Act or Corporations Act or under the Fund's own governing rules, or if you've got a fiduciary duty under uh, general law, and you're acting in accordance with that, then the default position is that you have your trustee hat on at that time when you're doing that work, so therefore you do not need to charge for it unless there's factors suggest that you're acting in a different capacity, right? So what are those factors? Well, basically they say that you would not be taken to be doing the work with your trustee hat on if you're using the equipment of a business or of your profession or employment in a material manner when providing those services. So, for example, let's say I'm a tradesman um, and I've got all of my work kind of equipment and I'm using that work to a material degree because I'm putting a second story on the house myself in Superfund owns, um, that's going to be material, Right. Um, if you're an accountant, well, if you're if you're using works, um, you know, software, you're going into work uh, and you're doing your accounts during your normal nine to five day using the IT uh, and all the support services around your accountancy business, then it's probably arguing you that you're doing that with your accountant hat on, not as uh, as a trustee, 
Okay, so but what they do say is that minor, infrequent, or irregular use of those those uh, materials, IT materials, for example, might be okay. So let's say you you open up the laptop on the weekend, um, and you go in and you you're doing something for the fund. Um, as long as you're doing it outside business hours, and the use of that work laptop is is you know minor and infrequent and irregular, that might not cause a problem. However, if you're using, as I say, the the resources of your business or your profession or employment to a significant extent, then you're going to have a problem with that, okay? Um, They will also look at things like whether the service is a type that can only be performed by a person that holds a relevant licence or qualification. And so a lot of the trades, so, for example, electrician, you need to be a licensed electrician, Right. Um, despite the fact that I had a, a light switch in the house open the other day. Um, no, certain types of electrician work you have to be licensed for. Plumbing, same thing, right? So if, if you need to actually be licensed to do the work that you're doing for the fund, then you have that licensed hat on. You don't have a trustee hat on, okay? Um, another indication here would be whether the activity is covered by an insurance policy relating to their business or their profession or employment. So, for example, professional indemnity insurance, uh, if I'm a financial advisor or an accountant or something along those lines. Okay. And, and what about if it's you're not necessarily using tools and um, license or anything like that, but let's say you're just using the knowledge or expertise you have from what you do outside your SMSF Um Obviously, you can't switch that off when you're trying to put your trustee hat on. So does that have an impact? Uh, well, interesting. The, the, the ruling does actually deal with that. Um, so what it says there is that if, you know, throughout life, right, um, you're going to gather certain skills and experience, right? So if I'm an account, let's say I'm a financial advisor, right? So I'm a financial advisor and through that I develop the skills and expertise and knowledge to know all about developing investment strategies and investing the fund's assets and all that sort of stuff, right? But what the ruling says is just because I use that life experience or knowledge doesn't mean that I'm not acting as a trustee. Instead, they're going to go back and look at things such as, well, in doing that, did you use your, you know, your financial planning businesses, you know, resources to a material degree or extent, which would imply that you're not actually acting as a trustee here. So might be that actually the question would be, did you provide did you provide your own fund an SOA or an ROA? Now a convention advisor wouldn't, but that would be a question, right? Um, have you used the financial planning software or some sort of um, modeling system or whatever that you use to to run your financial planning business, have you used that to any sort of material degree to then turn around and advise your fund via the provision of an SOA or ROA, right? Um, And are you covered by your own professional indemnity insurance policy in the provision of that ROA or SOA to yourself? And if the answer to all of that is no, I'm just, I'm a financial advisor or me, myself, Craig, is someone that um, I could put together an investment strategy if I wanted to. If I sat down and simply wrote that out, right, I'm doing that with my trustee hat on, right, because I'm not doing it using the resources of my business. I'm not covered by anyone's insurance policy. I'm not required to be licensed. You know, financial advice you do need to be, but I don't need to have a financial 
be a financial advisor to write my own investment strategy. So therefore, all of those things would suggest that I've actually got my trustee hat on when I'm doing that. But do be careful, you know, if you overstep the mark somehow and all of a sudden the circumstances indicate that you're actually doing that in a different capacity, it can cause a problem. Right, okay. And what about, um, so sort of discounts, so uh, a staff discount or potentially pro bono work? Yeah, yeah, ruling boat deals with both of those things. So it does say that a staff discount can be okay. So if I, let's, let's say I work for, you know, an administration, SMSF administration firm, and that particular SMSF administration says, says if you get your fund administered, administered by us, we will give you a 25% discount on the cost of that administration. Now, to the extent that that is a company-wide policy open to all employees of the company, you are going to be fine because that discount has been offered on normal commercial terms, right? But if that discount is only available to me as the managing director of my SMSF administration firm, then I would suggest you might have a few problems trying to explain that, right? Now, the other one there is pro bono advice, right? So pro bono advice is free advice, essentially. Now, the way the ruling also deals with that is to say that, well, if you've got no ability to influence the person providing that pro bono service, I shouldn't say advice, but pro bono service, um, then that will not result result in nullity. And when I first read that, I thought, that's a bit odd. But then when you think about it, there might be situations where I'm a client, I have a third-party advisor, um, normal commercial relationship, but they also deal with my company, blah, 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 right? So they've got a, a number of sources of, um, they're providing a number of um, services to me in both relation to a number of entities. And let's just say I go in there and I'm talking to them about my company tax return or something on those lines, and I ask them this additional question in relation to my self-managed fund, and they do a little bit of work in relation to that. Now, they may turn around and say, you know, the cost of that service is, let's say, 200 bucks, right? It's going to cost me more to drop the invoice than it's, I'm going to get from you by charging for it. So don't worry about that's gratis, right? Now, in that situation, now the fund's now incurred a non unplanned expense. Does that now cause my fund to have gnarly? Can you imagine? <laughs> um, and the answer to that is as long as you didn't have the ability to influence their decision to give you that discount, you know, who knows about that? But as long as you don't, then it won't be gnarly. Okay, so they they do actually deal with that situation in the role. Okay, no worries. Um, and so, so just finishing off, is there any anything else you think we need to cover? Now, there's a couple of things here. Yeah, first of all, you know, what are we in for? Forty nine minutes. Forty nine minutes into this role, um, there is a government announcement here to say that um, they're going to review the NALE rules. Right now, so everything I've said, no, don't ignore it. Right, just be because that ruling is current, but just be aware that the government is actually reviewing NALI. Now, why are they reviewing it? Because every single side of the superannuation industry, one of the few times ever, they all got together and said, no, this ruling doesn't work because it's got all of these problems with it. And as a united industry, so industry funds, retail funds, self-managed super funds, everyone all got together and wrote to the government and said, nah, this doesn't work. And apparently they sent them a list of something. I was chatting to the Peter Burgess of the SMSF Association. He said that we had a list of 41 things. Actually said 40 until I brought up one issue with him. And he said, now it's 41. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, 
So they wrote, and the government has turned around and said, yes, we will review these rules. Now, what does that mean? They said they're going to review the rules. Is that reviewing the law or is that reviewing the ruling? I don't know. The governments don't review rulings. That's an ATO thing. So they may actually go back and review the law um, and they may say, you know what, no need for any changes. And so, therefore, this ruling stands. Or they, if they are convinced that there's a problem here, um, they might go and amend the, the law in some small fashion um, to address those issues or somehow, and that would then mean the ruling needs to be to be clarified. So just keep that in mind, but I would be taking the approach currently that this ruling applies, right, and I would be complying with it to the extent that I'm capable of. I would not be hoping that things change or relying on things. I can hope or I want, that's fine, but don't rely on the fact that they're going to change. Um, another thing here to think about is just making sure that everything you do is arm's length. And so what's arm's length? Well, it's, you just got to be able to benchmark something against something, right? So if you're, you're going to charge your fund for your admin services, I was talking to an advisor the other day, just the other day, and I said, he goes, oh, well, what do I need to charge? And I said, well, what do you, what do you charge your clients? He goes, is that simple? I said, yep, it's just charge what you charge your clients. You know, you need to be able to benchmark it in some way. Um, also, uh, be wary of um, a couple of things. So what I say is sweat funds that do any of these things, right? So which of my funds do I ne- really need to worry about? Which are the ones I don't? Well, you can say the funds I don't need to worry about are those funds that buy all of their assets, are listed shares or manage investment schemes that are acquired on market or from the issuer. Uh, they only make cash contributions. There's no assets there, or at least to any sort of related parties. And all their service providers are non-unthink parties. If I've got a fund that looks like that, that's a fund that to me is low risk. I don't really have to worry too much about it because there's nothing there that can potentially a trustee can trip up on and all of a sudden now I've got non-unthink income. Funds that I need to worry a bit about are those funds that, let's say, I've got a, a property that I might lease to a related party. I need to make sure that that lease is maintained on an unthink basis. Um, If I'm doing in-specie contributions, I need to make sure that those in-specie contributions, if they're in-specie, that's going to be fine. I just need to book it at market value, so go and get a proper valuation on it. Um, If there's part purchase, I need to make sure that all of that documentation is tickety-boo, sweet and clean to avoid these potential problems. And if I've got clients trying to do things like employee share schemes, just big word of warning, don't, right, um, because that's probably going to result in gnarly for you. And the final ones is those red alert funds, right? Which are the funds I really need to worry about? Well, if you're listening to this and you're an advisor, an accountant, something like that, your fund you need to worry about, right? Because if you're providing any sort of services to your fund, then this potentially results in all the income being being a problem. Um, if I've got investments in related company or trusts, so remember there, I'm not just looking at, the acquisition costs into those companies' trust. It's also any income coming out of those companies or trusts where there's some sort of non-unthink dealing with inside that company or trust. So give you an example, there was a self-managed ship fund regulators bulletin that basically said that where there was uh, two self-managed ship funds investing into technically an unrelated unit trust that went and borrowed to do a property development, the members or the trustees of the SMSS in their personal capacity provided guarantees to the financier for the for the company to borrow. And what the ATO said is the dividends coming out of the private company is now gnarly because the company itself incurred a non-unsect expense because of the provision of those uh, security or guarantees by the directors, right, because that the 
they took on the risk, but they weren't remunerated for that. So do be aware of that. Um, and the other thing I'd just simply say here is just make sure everything, you know, figure out what the market value is and make sure you charge it. Just comply with the rules until we know more. Yep, good advice. And also one other thing just to note, if, you, if you're sitting here wondering about how these rules work for what you've charged your fund over the last couple of years, do be aware that because there was a lot of uncertainty around that draft ruling, the ATO did come out with a transitional compliance approach here. So what they said is that basically um, in relation to general fund expenses, and it's only in relation to general fund expenses, uh, in the draft version of LCR 2021-2, the ATO did announce uh, in 2020 that they would apply a transitional approach. So that was in Practical Compliance Guideline 2020-5, and it said it will not allocate any compliance resources to determine whether income of a super fund is narrowly where the fund incurred nale of a general nature that has a sufficient nexus to all of the in ordinary or statutory income derived by the fund from 1 July 2018 through to 30 June 2022. So as a result of that, gnarly rules in relation to general fund expenses will in practice have an effective date of the 1st of July 2022 and will not be retrospective. But that pretty much wraps it up. Thanks very much for that, Craig. No problems. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during this podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.